0: I grew up in Michigan and we were Catholic growing up. I believed in God and I believed in heaven, but I believed in a really punitive God that was just waiting to, you know, like, whack you on the head as soon as you made a bad mistake, and I remember growing up under the impression that or worrying that if something happened and I died before I could get to confession or get to church, then that was it. So I always kind of grew up just fearing God and being worried that I was somehow messing up. And even when you unlearn that, that's kind of still in your head, you carry it with you. And I moved to Kentucky after I got divorced from my kids' dads, I have three kids. So I got a full-time job, went to nursing school, put myself through nursing school, raised the kids. And in 2002, I graduated from nursing school and I went right to work in the open heart unit. And most of my work has been critical care. And then I retired in 2014. I'm just in the kitchen with my daughter and we're making smoothies and, and I'm drinking this sm- strawberry smoothie and all of a sudden it starts feeling like I'm um, not able to swallow as easily, like I'm having to use a lot of extra effort. Then I noticed like, I, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm drooling. What the, What is going on? And and my tongue felt weird and I was itching all around my mouth and I thought, oh my gosh, I'm I'm having a serious allergic reaction because it was just so rapid onset. And I'd had a history of allergy to shellfish, so I had EpiPens, the little allergy shots you give yourself if, if you're having a serious reaction. But I'd never used them in all the years I'd had them. And, and so I kept waiting, thinking, no, no, this this can't be it. And it was it was just progressing really fast. And so I gave myself the shot, and my son took me to the emergency room. And there was a nurse there that I knew because I had helped out in their ICU. And as soon as I saw her, I was like, oh, no. And I walk up to the counter, and I'm, I'm looking up because I can't breathe if I'm looking straight ahead and I'm wheezing, like the breathing is very loud sounding. And she's like, okay, what are you you here for? And I said, I'm in anaphylaxis. And she said, well, you took your EpiPen. Why did you come here? And I thought, oh no, like that's the procedure. And I was a little nervous that an emergency room nurse who'd been a nurse as long as she had didn't know that. And so she says, okay. Well, I've got a clean room, but I don't have a bed, so I'm just gonna put you in a wheelchair until we can get a bed in that room. And, and I'm like, no, 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 I don't need a bed. Just wheel the wheelchair in there. And she's like, no, no, we need a bed in there. So she wheels me down this hall that's kind of like right next to the nurse's station and there's a, the doctor's sleeping quarters is back there. So it's kind of off away from everything and quiet and you can't hear what's going on back there. And she pushes me way down that hall, almost to the sleeping quarters. And so I'm sitting there waiting and and things are getting worse and worse and I'm having what's called Strider. It's this, when your throat starts swelling shut, your breathing starts making this high pitch almost like a whistling noise. So that kicked in and I thought, oh geez. And EpiPens thankfully come in two packs. And you're not supposed to do this. Like every emergency room person would freak out if they saw you giving your own medicine. But I'm like, what am I gonna do? You know, I don't wanna die. So I take out the second shot, give myself the second shot and it settles down a little bit for maybe, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes. And then it all starts back up again. It's just kind of this refractory anaphylaxis that won't stop. And finally this lady looks down the hall and she's like, oh my gosh. She comes running down the hall and she grabs a chair and she runs it to this room. And I'm familiar with that whole hospital. And so now they can't get an IV in because I'm in full throes of anaphylaxis and all my veins have gone flat and and I'm a bad stick anyway. And I'm thinking, oh man, they're not gonna be able to get an IV in me. You know, what are we gonna do? And finally, she says, um, "We need to get her across the hall to trauma." And I thought, "Oh no, this is bad." And I'm in there, and I'm just getting worse and worse. And they finally get this really sketchy, barely in IV, and they start giving me Benadryl through that. I think by the time I got to the other hospital, I'd had 600 milligrams of Benadryl. Normal dose is 25. So, but it just it wasn't stopping anything. And so my husband gets there, and I'm sitting straight up in the bed, looking up, and you know this horrible breathing noise and he says to the doctor he's like you need to do something she's going to quit breathing and the doctor says oh no no we've we've got plenty of time before that happens and in my mind it was really quick but i think it was a few minutes and everything just kind of started getting tunnely and my hearing everything seemed very far away and then i just collapsed and quit breathing and as soon as i did i popped out of my body and s- it was really strange because I was confused about what was going on and I could see all the people coming in, I knew who ran the code on me, I knew who intubated me. And as they were pushing in, they were kind of pushing my husband out of the room. And I remember hearing the code call going off overhead and thinking, oh my goodness, somebody's really sick. And I was looking down at the me in the bed and I didn't know it was me. And I thought, wow, I hope she's okay. She's, she looks like she's in really bad shape. And that was it, everything kind of went black. and. The next time I kind of was aware again, I was in the back seat of my sister's car and my sister lived in Wisconsin at the time. It's pouring rain, it's late at night, and I know something's wrong because I can't feel, like I don't have the normal density I normally feel with my body. I can't feel myself against the back of the seat or the bottom of the seat, and I'm thinking, okay, something's weird. The weather's really bad, it's dark, she's driving, I don't want to freak her out, you know, because I don't want her to have a wreck or anything. And so I'm just kind of trying to figure out what's going on. And I peek over the seat and she's wearing this outfit and it's awful. It's wrinkled. And I'm thinking, what did she do? Get dressed in the dark, like out of the laundry basket? Where is she going? And then it occurred to me there must be some emergency. Why else would she be out at night in this weather? And and she pulls over at this gas station. She pulls out her phone and she opens the Facebook app and types, hang on, kiddo, I'm coming. And that was it. Meantime, like in this side of the existence, they had flown me by helicopter to a bigger hospital in Lexington. They had used what looks kind of like a Dremel tool to drill a needle into my shin bone so they could put fluids in me that way and medications and because they couldn't get any veins. And, and I was um, in an induced coma in ICU. And so when I'm aware again, I'm in this dark place and it's really dark. You can't see your hand in front of your face, but it's weird because I had this, I still have this visual image of me in that space, but I couldn't see what was around me. I knew I wasn't standing on anything. I wasn't lying down, I wasn't sitting. Something was kind of suspending me. I felt all this pressure against my chest, and and I remember thinking it was a lot of work to breathe, like I was having to work really hard, and I didn't know where I was. I didn't know how big the place was because it was so dark and or how I had gotten there. and. And so then eventually I just kind of went back into what I call the deep sleep. And then I would kind of wake up again in that place and and be so upset because I was still there. I'm like, what the heck? I, I thought that was a dream and here, here I still am. And so this just kept going on and on and I was getting more and more anxious and I was starting to doubt that I had ever actually existed. Because if I had existed, like, why weren't people looking for me? And then I started doubting my whole life, like maybe because I'd been in this dark place for so long I'd made all of that up just for something to think about. And maybe none of those people existed or maybe, maybe I had done something terrible that I couldn't remember and just been banished to this place and everyone had forgotten me. Both thoughts were just horrible. And so I would keep going in and out. And at one point I was awake again in the dark place and I decided to lean forward. And it was interesting because it wasn't like leaning forward at the waist, it was kind of like I leaned forward and my legs came up behind me. So, you know, I'm kind of planking almost. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's how you do it. That's how you move in this place. And so I was kind of like levitating in that position. And so I leaned forward a little bit more and I started going the direction of where I was leaning. And I'm like, oh gosh, this is great. I can move and I was so excited. And the further forward that I leaned, I would just go faster and faster and faster. That's kind of how you accelerate it. And I'm doing this in complete darkness. And I'm thinking, man, I hope this is an open space because if I run into something, it's going to be bad. And off to the distance, I can see light, but not like a tunnel or anything like that, just kind of light like you would see from the street if a room off of the main windows had a light on. So just this faint light, I see it and I think, OK, that I'll go that way. And so I go that way. And I come up to this, kind of like a partition, like they used to make these um, heavy glass blocks and they would put them in bathrooms, like around showers and stuff. It distorts what you can see beyond it. And that's what it looked like. And I put my hand against it and it was hard. And I'm like, okay, I don't, what is this, you know? And as I got close enough that my nose touched, I was able to see what was on the other side. And it was my physical body in the hospital bed, in ICU. My wrists were restrained to the bed. I was on the ventilator, obviously unconscious and I kind of looked at all my vital signs and saw that they weren't great and I looked at all the drugs that were hanging on the IV and was able to determine that I was in an induced coma just based on the drugs that were hanging and then I remembered I was a nurse. And I'm like, oh, that's right, I know that because I'm a nurse and I had forgotten that. Well, I see my daughter and she's standing to my right just behind my shoulder but in front of the ventilator and she's wearing this flannel shirt and this was in August, and I remember thinking, why is she wearing that hot shirt? But I could see every fiber in the shirt, and just looking at it, I was able to know I could feel it, like physically feel it. And my daughter is this really stoic, just really even killed kind of person, but you never know what's going on in her head, you know, those waters run deep. And and I always wondered, her whole life, I've always wondered, you know, what is she thinking? Is she okay? You know, how is this affecting her? And. When I thought about that for a second, I was feeling her feelings, and I could feel how scared she was. And I had never really known what her personal feelings were on most things because she was just very private. And and when I felt that from her, that terror from her that I was gonna die, it just broke my heart. And I instantly put my hands out to grab her, to pull her to me, and my hands hit the wall. And I would just flew into this rage, and I was yelling and carrying on, I was so mad. and. And I was yelling at God, I'm like, you know, what is this? What is this place? Like, why would you show me this? And let me go back or make me all the way dead or something. I I don't want to do this anymore. And as the matter I got, the further back I got pulled into the darkness, into the place that I had been before. And so I go back to that place. I go back to sleep. But when I wake up, I'm like, okay, I know how to move. And, And so I immediately go back to that wall. And when I get to the wall, it's like a bubble. You can almost see it kind of breathing. And I thought, oh, the wall's different today. So I put my hand against the wall and I pushed a little bit and it went through and I could see my hand on the other side. And I was like, oh, hot damn, I can get over there. you know. And so I put my hand all the way through and then I put my other hand through and I was kind of scared to put my body through because like, was it like back to the future? Like if I see myself, what's gonna happen? I just didn't know. And so I pushed through and, and I'm on the other side and I'm like, oh my God, I did it. I did it, I'm on the other side. I guess now I just have to figure out how to get back in my body. And so I'm looking down at me, and and I'm getting really nervous because my physical self's hands are restrained, and I'm super claustrophobic, so that totally freaked me out. And I'm like, okay, calm down, you know, kind of talking myself down. And I'm thinking, okay, maybe I just need to, like, lower myself and kind of lay on top of the me that's in the bed, and then maybe I'll just get soaked back up like a sponge. And that didn't work and so i thought okay maybe i don't go into it maybe i have to wake up that physical body and then i'll get sucked in and so i'm trying to wake me up and i'm staring at me you know and i'm very crossly you know giving myself the what for and i'm like okay open your eyes open your eyes come on open your eyes and i'm getting more and more frustrated because the me in the bed is not cooperating and i finally i'm like oh dang it it's not gonna work you know i need to try something else and I thought okay maybe you're going too big try something smaller and so i was looking at me in the bed and i thought oh my finger if i could just move that finger and so i'm focusing all my energy on the finger and i'm trying to get the finger to move and me in the bed is absolutely not cooperating and i just i get mad again and i get sucked back onto the other side of the wall but not all the way back i'm crying and i'm mad and scared and okay there's got to be something i'm supposed to figure out here that I'm not getting it. I'm not getting something. Why am I in this place? There's got to be a reason. And I was looking around and it just came to me. And I thought, because you made this place. (laughs) It still gets me. And as soon as I realized it, I grew up on the lakes in Michigan and they freeze over and in the spring, dad would take us out there and you could hear them thawing and cracking. And it makes this really haunting noise as the crack gets further and further away. And, that was the sound, just much louder. And as the cracking started happening, light started pouring through. And I'm like, oh my gosh, there's another place. There's light. This, I'm going to get out of here. Oh, I've got goosebumps. So the light starts coming through. The darkness starts breaking, and I can see the shards of it. It's like a physical thing. And the spirit comes toward me, and it's huge, like huge in a way that something is grand and takes your breath away. And I'm seeing the spirit, and she's coming closer and closer to me. And I was so happy to see her. I'm like, oh, thank God, there's somebody here. And she opens her arms, and as she opens her arms, I'm just pulled into her arms by her will. She didn't have to touch me. She put one arm around me, and her energy was just circling around us. And all these shards of the broken darkness kept trying to get at me. And they would hit her energy, and they'd go flying off, and they were gone. And I knew they weren't just like gone out of sight. They were gone forever. That piece of the darkness was gone forever because she had fixed it. And I just started crying, like ugly crying, hysterical. But with her mind, she says, calm yourself, dear one. And I always tell people if you've ever had surgery or a procedure where you've had to be sedated and they're pushing that drug in and you can feel it going through you, you can feel it um, sedating you, you can actually feel it as it's happening. That's what it was like. It was like her words broke apart and had their exact intended effect on me. I couldn't have resisted it. So I finally, I'm, I'm calming down and everything, and I'm trying to figure out who she is. I know I know her. And I'm, I look up, and I am I look at her face, and I look at those blue-green eyes, and on the top of her head, she's got this red hair, red-orange hair that's that looks like fire on her head. And I immediately knew it was my grandmother, and I'm like, oh my gosh, it's, it's my grandmother, my mom's mom. Her name was Levita Patrius, and she worked in the steel stamping plants in Michigan, and it was a horrible job, and she lived with us when I was really little. Every day I would sit on the porch and wait for her to come home, and she would come home just red-faced and soaked in sweat. I mean, it was hard physical labor, and I just loved her. She was just an incredible person. She was a force. My husband always says, you know, you have an overdeveloped sense of justice. Well, I get it from her. She died when I was nine, and I remember there weren't enough seats for the people to attend her funeral. I mean, she was just beloved. So there she was to greet me. And I remember looking at her and I said, with my mind, because you don't have to speak there, I said, oh my gosh, I thought you were dead. And she said, oh no, there's no death. You know this. And I'm like, no. And she says, yes, you know this, you learned this in school. And I'm thinking, when did they teach us there was no death? And I don't know what she's talking about. And she said, energy isn't created or destroyed, it just changes form. That's God's rule, borrowed by man. The energy of who you are can't die. It just has to change forms because you can't stop energy. I was like, that is the best explanation I've actually ever heard. Everything else sounds good, but it didn't make sense scientifically. And so I was real happy to hear that. And I thought, boy, she's smart, you know. <laughs> so we were just kind of glad to be there and be in her arms. I can't even remember all the things that we went over. and. And I remember asking her if I was dead. And she said, oh, no, 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 you're not dead. She said, you're kind of in between. You've got the you that's, you know, sick in the hospital, and then the spirit side of you that's here. And there's a cord that's attaching you to your body. But if you decide to stay, the cord will be broken, and you'll stay. And if you decide to go back, the cord will pull you back. And I thought, OK, well, that's that's good. So I know how that works now. And. I just was kind of in her arms and I started crying again and she did the, you know, call yourself, dear one. And I almost fell asleep. I was in this really super relaxed state, but aware. But I looked around after a while and I realized she was gone. And I'm like, okay, where did, you know, she's gone. But I was still in the light, so I was okay. And I started hearing this rumbling Like if you've ever gone and seen those air shows where like the Blue Angels go, or I went to one when I was pregnant with my daughter, it was so intense that it threw me into labor. And that's what it was like. It was just like this rumbling that went all the way to your bones, almost ached. I could see the effect of whatever that was, and it was shaking everything that had ever existed. But it was doing it in a way that you wouldn't be able to see it on this side, but I could see it. So everything that had ever existed everything that existed, everything that would ever exist, existed, and it was all shaking. And I was like, oh no, it's God. (laughs) And I think most people are like, yay, I get to see God. And immediately I was like, oh shoot, if she could read your mind, he probably can too. You need to think of something good you've done. And nothing came to mind. And I'm not like a serial killer. I should be able to think of one thing. And I couldn't, I couldn't think of anything. And I'm like, oh no, you know what? There's, gotta be something and and I could feel this shaking getting closer and finally he's there and it's this light and I say he but I didn't see a person but the whole interaction to me seemed like a masculine figure and uh, he got there then my brain was just quiet and I don't think I've ever had that where there's not any thought going through your mind is just open and, and you're experiencing everything around you but you're not thinking about it and uh, I was like, oh my gosh, God is here. He's gonna like go through my life and stuff. This is gonna be really bad. And so immediately he's like, you know, calm yourself. And I calmed down and it almost felt like we materialized in this scene in my life. And so the first thing he showed me was good. And he showed me myself in this grocery store, this little grocery store in this town we used to live in. And there was a lady ahead of me in line and she didn't have enough money to pay. She was trying to figure out what to put back. And I was a single mom, you know, and three kids, and tried, and I'd been there, and she was so embarrassed. She's apologizing to the people in line, and and I stood close to her, and I said, hey, here. And I took the money out of my purse, and I gave it to her, and she's like, no, 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 that's okay. You don't have to do that. That's, I'll just put this back, and she was going to put back the things that were for her. None of the things that I could see were for her family. And I just was like, oh, my gosh, I know I've been in that spot. And I said, it's okay, take it, take the money. It's like, change, you know? So she took it, and I'm like, wow, of all the good things I've done, that's the, that's it. That's the one, you know, it seems so minor. And then the scene expands and it's years down the road. And I can see her in this like a food closet, a food pantry sort of thing for people who don't have enough food. And this lady comes in and, and the lady that I had helped in the grocery store is working behind the counter. And a, a woman comes in and she's like, I'm so embarrassed. We just don't have enough food. And, and the lady's like, it's okay. Gets me every time. It's okay. I've been there myself you know let me help you don't feel bad and i was amazed at the ripple effect i thought i handed 70 some cents to a woman and it's still changing the world this many years later you know maybe not in a huge way but a lot of little changes add up i was just amazed that it some little kindness that i didn't i had forgotten registered that high and so I'm like okay you know what's the what's the bad thing and and you know I'm thinking of all the things that that I don't wanna watch myself relive with God standing next to me and and he pulls up this this scene and it's this I worked with this nurse and she was very hard to work with she had a very difficult personality I found myself like picking up a lot of the slack and kind of resenting her for that and I never said anything negative to her but I thought a whole lot of negative things and I was thinking very judgy thoughts about her and God showed me her life and I was just blown away. And He showed me all the things that her dad had done to her and all the abuse that she'd endured and still she decides to go into a helping profession so while she was not what I would consider an ideal nurse she had so overcome her past and despite all of the horrible things she'd been subjected to she chose to go into a profession where she could help people. And God told me, he said, you know, you have to be careful, thoughts have energy and words have more energy and actions have more energy and words and actions come from thoughts and you have to learn to control your thoughts because all those negative things that you think about her, it doesn't matter if you spoke them or not, that energy travels and it gets on her and it makes her more that way and you make it harder for her to break out of that mold. That's why, you know, you're supposed to pray for people who hurt you because by hating them quietly or by despising them quietly, you're hindering their being able to move on and be a better person. And it just blew my mind because I was always that person who hated people who gossiped. Women would be standing around, and it's just so common in the nursing profession, and they'd all be standing there and they'd start talking trash about a fellow coworker. And I would just turn around and walk away. So they always thought I was weird because I would just walk away in the middle of conversations. And I just thought, you're talking about her that way. I'm sure when I'm not here, you're talking about me that way and I don't trust you for that. And I thought that I was better because I didn't say the things out loud. And so it really was an interesting perspective on something that I hadn't considered anything I needed to work on. And so there kind of came this moment where I had to decide, was I gonna go any further or was I just gonna turn around and go back at this point? But all of a sudden, all this resentment and anger boiled up in me at God. It came spilling out. I couldn't have stopped it. And I remember, like, tr- thinking, could I suck that thought back in? And, and I just couldn't. Just all of this hurt came out. And I said, look, you're supposed to be this great God, and you, you're supposed to love us, and, and, and you're supposed to want our good. But when my husband left, you didn't do anything to heal that. You know, I prayed and prayed to heal that marriage and, and that he would be faithful and all these things, and you didn't do that. And it hurt me, but that's not even the point. The point is it hurt my children. These are little kids. You can't even intervene for little kids. I mean, what kind of love is that of a father? I would remember, you know, my ex-husband saying he was going to send something in the mail, and he'd say that to my kids. And, you know, my youngest would walk out to the mailbox every day thinking something was going to be there, and nothing was going to be there, and I knew it. And I'm like, how could you do that? How, how could you not intervene and change his heart or something? Not have those kids have to go through that. And he's like, oh my goodness, you've completely misunderstood me. Let me show you. And so this scene unfolds and it's me in the future. So when this whole thing happened, I only had one grandchild and he was two. And in the scene, he's five. And I'm sitting in these bleachers next to my son my grandson is on the field, he's playing soccer and he's running up and down the field and he's tan and you can see the light on his hair and he's smiling and he just, just has all this energy so alive, you know, and I'm looking at him and it's just amazing that I'm like, wow, there's so much that goes into that creation, you know, and um, my son looks at me, <laughs> he gets me every time, he looks at me and he says, mom, I'm going to be the dad to him that I deserved. And I thought, okay. If that's what this was for, if that's what the suffering was for, to break this cycle of fathers who aren't doing what they're supposed to do in this family, then okay, I'm, I'm willing to take one for the team if we can fix it for everybody after us. And what was funny is that situation actually played out when my grandson was five years old. And it was this confirmation to me that I hadn't imagined all of this and that near-death experience had really happened. It's funny because you you kind of go back and forth. It's such a huge thing to believe. and. So in that moment, I was like, I had to decide whether I was going to go on this next leg of the journey with God or not and be okay with it. That was the big part, be okay with it. And I remember standing there thinking, okay, let's do it. As soon as I said that, this light from him, kind of a piece of the light swirled off and it came around my feet and it came into me through my toes and I could feel it tingling and vibrating and it came up through my legs and it got to my middle and, and I felt it like wrapping around, it was like a cloak made of light. And I could feel it going around my internal organs. Like you know how when something bad happens, you have that awful feeling in your gut, that kind of visceral reaction. It was healing those visceral reactions I had had over a lifetime that were making me sick. And it started to move up. I felt it go into my chest and I felt it go around into my heart and this thing's kind of swirling around and it comes up, I can feel it in my neck and my neck was really warm and it came out of my mouth. And as it came out of my mouth, I started singing and my tongue was glowing and I'm a terrible singer. And I was singing like super good. Like, you know, go to an award show and ask Penny to sing kind of good. And I was like, oh my gosh, I hope if I go back, I can keep that because my husband will love that because he's a musician. And so then the light starts going up and I can feel it behind my eyes. But I closed my eyes, I didn't want to let it out. And so I squeezed my eyes shut and it shot out through my eyelashes. And it hit the light that was around me and it bounced back in and then like surged into my brain. And I could feel it going through every little curve and fold in my brain. And as it would go through, as the light would touch every little neuron in my brain, I would know things. I would know everything about the world, every question I'd ever had, every question anybody had ever had. And I remember in that moment thinking, oh my gosh, this is amazing. There's no way he's gonna let me have this. And so it, you know, it goes through my brain and then it, it stops and all of that knowledge is gone, and or a good amount of it. And um, we're going to now travel through my DNA. And so he takes my hand and it's like we're flying together and we're going through these loops, this twirling of my DNA. It was so fast, like I'd never flown that fast before. And all of a sudden we get to this point in the DNA and we just come to a dead stop, like hitting a wall. And I looked at him and I knew I had to decide, you know, are you going to stay or are you going to go? And I was like, oh no, I'm staying. (laughs) And everybody says that. They're like, oh yeah, you know, I wanted to stay. And it was my decision. But as soon as I said it, I knew it was wrong. I knew, I knew like I had made this decision a long time ago and that I needed to go back. And I started thinking about how I'd lived my life. I just started stacking up these bricks, you know, so here was the brick that was my husband cheating on me and here was the brick that was our marriage failing and and I just kept stacking up all these hurts, you know, throughout a lifetime. And I had eventually built myself a jail because I didn't want to get hurt again. And so in my life, I'd go to work and I was pleasant and people liked working with me and I loved working. and but I didn't develop any friendships. I didn't talk to anybody outside of work. I would go home and get my stuff caught up and take care of my family, but I was getting more and more socially phobic. I was having trouble even answering phone calls and I was just becoming more and more isolated and nobody knew it but me. You've built a jail and you're your own jailer and you didn't even know it. And I didn't want to come out. You know, I wanted to stay back in there. I didn't want to be hurt anymore. And that was the dark place. That was the void. I made that. I had walled myself off from all these people and created this spiritually dark place and spent what felt like 10 years in our time in that dark place. But I always tell people, I'm like, now don't think this is what's gonna happen when you die for real. A near-death experience isn't that. I don't know that this is what happens when you actually physically die and don't come back. This is what happened to me. And I do think God personalizes these experiences because he knows you're going back. So, you know, I was thinking, okay, I need to go back because I I haven't lived yet. And so I decide to go back and as soon as I make the decision, the light starts pulling back and I start pulling away and I immediately become frantic, like shaking and crying and, and God's like, you know, it's okay. And I said, wait, 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 wait. And so he stops and I said, just let me remember it. Because I'm worried if I go back and I can't remember it, I'll lose all hope. And I wake up and I'm in this hospital room and this nurse is standing there and I was astonished. I Like, I hadn't expected, it was like this sudden throw into back into your body, right? And and it, it just, it was crazy. Like, all of a sudden I had density again, that really sucked, and, and my whole body hurt. I mean, I'd been in a coma and on a ventilator for like five days or something. The nurse is sitting there, and immediately I say, I was with God. And she's like, oh, that's nice, dear, you know? And she taps my hand, and I'm like, no. I mean, just a minute ago, I was with God. Like, god the god and she's like oh that's nice to hear let me go get your family and i'm like i'm in a religious hospital like you would think people would be like oh my gosh that's so cool what did he look like no 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 right so my family comes in and my sister comes in what was so weird is and i can't the time is really jumbled there but there had been a point when i was on the other side that i had seen my sister in the waiting room sitting with my son there were these chairs along the wall the corner chair was empty the chair next to it was empty my son was sitting in the next chair my sister had her purse between them and she was sitting in this chair and there were these bathrooms off to the right i had never seen this waiting room before but i mean that's the perfect description of it and she reaches into her purse and she's crying and they're talking about how i don't have any of my last wishes ordered up would i want to be kept alive on a ventilator all this kind of thing and she starts crying she pulls this blue kleenex out of her purse and that was the thing i keyed in on i'm like Wow, I wonder where she got blue Kleenex. That's amazing, and even though they made blue Kleenex, and that's like this huge moment, but they all come in, and and you know I had seen what they had talked about in there, and I said I saw what you posted online, and there it was. You know she had posted that. It was a message to my daughter, I think. You know, hang on, I'm coming. So I'm telling them, I'm like I was with God, and they're like, oh that's that's nice. You know, mom, we're we're so glad you're back now. You and the nurse is like, okay, let's you know let's let her rest. So that she runs them out, and they close the light, they close the sliding door in the room and pull the curtain and they turn off the lights and i think it was like the first time the lights had been off in that room and and i'm in there by myself it's really quiet and all of a sudden god appears in the corner of the room and it scares me because you don't expect him just to pop in and so i scream and he starts cracking up laughing and i'm like i said oh my god you scared me i said i thought you were gone he's like i'm god i'm never gone and i'm like well i know that but you don't just pop into rooms you know and so we were kind of having this chuckle over it He said, I want you to share this message with people. And so he gave me this message. I'll have to pull it up. I always have to read it. It was just this most beautiful thing that anybody had ever written. And he's like, I want you to share that with the world. So I was like, wow, that's the most beautiful thing anybody's ever said to me. And I'm absolutely not sharing that with anybody else. I'm keeping that for myself, right? So I didn't share that for a very long time. And I went into these respiratory failures 18 times over two and a half years. We could not figure out what was wrong with me. I mean, we had everything from, oh, you're just anxious. I'm like, why would the emergency room intubate me for anxiety? That doesn't make any sense. And this doctor, just this one doctor in particular was like, don't let them intubate you anymore. And, you know, we don't just intubate people because they say they're having trouble breathing. We do labs. We see that they're going into respiratory failure. But he didn't believe me. And he ended up having to come back that day and intubate me himself. And I have a friend named Brian Smith who I'd known from a Facebook group on people who'd had near-death experiences. And Brian had asked me over and over again, would I please come to Cincinnati and speak to their IANS group, International Association for Near-Death Studies. And every time I said no or I made up an excuse that I couldn't do it because I had such social anxiety. And so I kept having these episodes. I kept going into respiratory failure. I didn't meet God anymore after that until the last time. And so on that 18th time, we finally had a diagnosis. We knew that I had mast cell activation disorder and it was causing just unprovoked anaphylaxis. And the doctors had told me generally what happens is it either goes into remission at around two and a half or three years or you die. And we don't, we don't have any way to fix it. So at the two and a half year point, I had an attack. I went into respiratory failure. I popped out of my body and I was there with God. And I'm like, I'm done. This is ridiculous, you know. Here I had this great experience and I'm still sick. It's awful. And you never knew when it was gonna hit. We could be out to dinner, we could be sleeping, just anything. It's terrifying, you know, and I remember we would go to the emergency room and they knew me and they'd bring the crash cart in and and I'd be looking at my husband crying and he's like, It's gonna be okay, honey. You just be in a coma for a couple of days and then you know, we'll get you off the ventilator, you're gonna be okay. And and I just didn't wanna live like that anymore. And I I told him, I'm like, just take me. I can't do it anymore. I can't put my family through it. I just can't do it. I can't live in constant fear that I'm gonna die any minute. And he looks at me and he says, it's not me, it's you. And I was so offended. I was like, what? You're God, you can fix this. And he's like, no, this is you. He said, I keep, you said you wanted to go back. You said you wanted to live. And I'm like, yes. And he's like, but you're not doing it. And I said, well, I'm dying every five minutes. I mean, over two and a half years, 18 times in the hospital, dying it doesn't leave a lot of room for doing other things and he said i keep putting people in your path to love and things in your path to do and you keep saying no you said you wanted to live so if you want to live when those things come into your path you need to say yes and i thought this was the most ridiculous thing i'd ever heard and i said okay so you're telling me that if i go back i've got this weird rare autoimmune disorder if i go back and somebody asks me to talk about this and i say yes then I'm going to be okay?" And he's like, yeah. Like, it was just that simple. And I'm like, okay, this sounds ridiculous, but you're God, so I'll give you this one. So I go back and as soon as I get home from the hospital, my friend Brian messages me and he's like, Hey, how are you doing? I wanted to check on you. I know you'd been in the hospital. And so would you consider coming up and giving a... And I said, yes, before I could stop myself. And I'm like, oh crap. You know, and, and I didn't know how to, like, back out of it. And, and I said, just hang up now, because if you stay on the phone, I'm going to come up with a reason. I can't do it. Just just hang up. And so I went and I did that talk, and that was the first yes I gave. And I've given a yes to every talk since, and I've never been in the hospital again for that disorder. It's just been in remission. I mean, I didn't think it would work, but here we are. And, and it's so funny because people are like, oh, so do you think it was, like, a psychosomatic thing? And I'm like, no, because I don't think you can make your respiratory system fail just because of stress or anxiety or worry or whatever i think that healing is much more broad than we think it is it's it's not just a pill it's not just finding out what that little problem is there's the mind and the body and the spirit and god but i'll get some pushback on that from people and and it's funny how people are so closed minded and and don't they can't accept anything other than what they believe about god and 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 it frightens them to think outside it. So I hear, you know, I hear I've had all of this and I'm thinking, I'm gonna start telling my story. I'm gonna start telling people. I'm gonna start talking at churches. You know, people need to know this, that that God really does love us and that he made us on purpose. And And I remember when I was over there with him, we were like back in time and I could see the moment when he thought me up. And I was like, how did I forget that I was with you before I was ever here? you know, that you made me, I existed in your mind first. And and it just was such a great thing to know because I'd always felt so separate from God, like God was this separate entity. And God showed me, you know, as we were going through my DNA, we stopped at that point and he's like, do you see me? I'm like, well, of course I see you, you're all around me. And he's like, no, and he pointed to this spot in my genetic code. He's like, do you see me? And I looked and I was blown away. I was like, oh my gosh. It still gets me. Oh, my gosh. And he said, Penny, a person can deny that their father is their father, but we can always come back to this and prove that he is their father, so they can say what they want. But I'm here. I'm in you. All this time, I feel like I've been searching for this distant God when part of him is in me, just like part of your mom and part of your dad are in your DNA. That doesn't make you God. It doesn't make you your mom or dad. But the creator of the universe is embedded in your genetic code. Part of him is in there. It's just amazing. And and I just never thought of that. And it really made me question everything in life, like all of the crap I'd believed about myself and all the stuff I'd believed about the world and all the stuff I was willing to put up with. and. I just started questioning everything about my faith. And I remember my husband came home one day and he was like, you know what, I'm gonna come home one day and your head's gonna be shaved and you're gonna tell me that you've become a Buddhist monk. And I looked at him and I said, would you love me less if that happened? Because we were really having a hard time and and I was super weird, I get it. And he thought about it and I said, you know, I was reading this book and it said that 70% of people who have a near death experience end up divorced. And we just decided in that moment that no matter how weird it was or what process I was going through to try to sort it all out, we were going we to stick to it. We were going to do it. We weren't going to be the 70 percent, but I feel sorry for him because there was a lot. We were in Walmart one day and I'm talking to him and I you know how you get that sense like somebody's looking at you? I can feel something, somebody looking at me and so I look out the window and there's a rock in the parking lot and I can see the energy coming off of the rock. And I could feel this rock loving me because everything that's here all, you know, I always tell people, if God's not real, then explain beauty to me. What's the point of it? We could be just a black and white creation with no color, no depth, no difference. If we were just kind of robots, automatons put here to just do whatever. But beauty, beauty's a gift. You go outside and you should be able to see God all around you. Every tree is him saying, look, I love you. I made you this tree. And the tree understands that energy. Everything has consciousness. And so it's funny how it changes you. And and it's so weird because you're going through all this craziness with being super sick. And, you know, I think everybody assumes you meet God and you come back and everything's perfect. And it's not. It was an absolute train wreck. And I mean, it took me three years to even be able to put it, put words to what had happened to me. And I would read them and I would think, This is awful. This is like this is like doing a mud drawing, you know, this doesn't capture it at all. And, and it was so frustrating to me that I'm so limited by language and and that I can't tell it to you like it was in that place. But uh, you know, I'm like, you just got to keep telling it, you've got to keep telling it, it'll come across, people will sense it. Initially, when I was telling my family, I think they were like, well, you know, she just came out of a coma and off some pretty crazy drugs, so that's probably what it was. And and it's funny because I, I get those points from people. They're like, oh, it's just a DMT reaction in your brain or whatever. It's just hallucinations. Well, I can tell you, as a nurse, patients who are having drug-induced hallucinations, that it is not cohesive. It's very confusing. It's erratic. It's scary, and then it's blissful, and it's just all over the place, and they're not able to tell the sequence the same every time. It's a complete, a hallucination is completely different from this. And then people say, oh, well, you know, when your body's deprived of oxygen, when your brain's deprived of oxygen, you put off these chemicals, and that's what you saw. And I'm like, okay, but I was on a ventilator, and my oxygen levels were controlled and perfectly normal, so that doesn't explain it either. And it also doesn't explain how I knew about the blue Kleenex or what my sister posted online or what my daughter was wearing that day in the hospital or what the drip rate was on the drug that I was on and what my blood pressure was. I mean, there's just no way you could know that. So it's interesting to me. I think there's always I go through and read the comments on some of the talks that I've done. And I'm always so honored that somebody would stop and take the time and listen to my story. You know, people are busy. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of noise in the world. But people are looking for hope. As bad as things are and as adversarial as things seem right now, ultimately everybody still wants hope. So I'll go back and I'll look at the comments on these talks, and people will just reveal just the most tragic things in their lives. They've had something horrible happen. They've lost somebody or whatever, and they still they're still reaching out for hope, you know? And, and then I'll get the people that are just ugly in the chat, you know, they're like, oh, this is a total lie. And this person, you can tell she's just making this up. And it's so funny, I almost have a warmth in my heart for them. I don't know who hurt you, but the fact is, you were charged with being the light on a hill and you continue to shoot your own wounded every day. Love changes people, judgment does not. Judgment makes people cling harder to the things that they wanna do. And so I would share the story, and when I share it with healthcare professionals, I think I get about the same degree of skepticism that I get in the general public. And you can kind of feel it, you know, you know that you shouldn't give another detail because this person's really prickly about it. And how a patient is received when they have that kind of experience. Like, what is the healthcare team's reaction to it? And generally, it's dismissive or, or oh, that's nice. Every once in a while, you'll get a nurse or somebody that's curious. but. It's definitely something you're encouraged not to talk about, just by the reaction. Because you don't, you know, when they write that you're crazy or delusional in your chart, it follows you. That chart doesn't go away. And so I think that's probably why so many people, and I don't know how they do it. I don't know how you have something this huge happen to you. I mean, it's like a fire in your bones and and you're you're never to speak of it because you're worried about the reaction you're going to get. It's got to be excruciating. I, I don't know how people do it. but. Shockingly, I'll say something and somebody will say, oh my gosh, I had a near-death experience when I was, I never told anybody. And so I'm like, I'll just keep pushing, you know, I'll just keep talking about it. And I'll just keep making my mark and doing what I can where I'm at. And I'm gonna trust that the, the ripple effect of that's gonna be huge. And I've actually seen that. So that's, that's pretty gratifying. We're closer, for sure. We're now studying this. There's been some good research on people who are in the hospital for heart attacks and having some interventional procedure to help with the heart attack, whether it's a bypass or they're working on a blockage or whatever. I think in that study they monitored the brainwave patterns of these people, and then if the people experienced clinical death, they then asked them, you know, did you see anything, that sort of thing. I think it was about 50-50. there's that group, they're just not going to go there. There's no science. And, and it's kind of that materialist view of the world, you know, if everything has to be something that can that is material, that can be explained, and and there can't be anything that exists outside that. And And I always ask people, and I'm like, well, how do you explain things like you're in a group of people, you're in a room full of people, and you feel somebody looking at you? I mean, so there's the energy of everybody in that room. I'm like, how many times have you felt somebody staring at you and look the wrong way first. Never, never, you always look, and you look right at that person who was staring at you, and then they're all, like all uncomfortable and they look away. In a room of 50 people, you can pin that down. So you can't tell me there's, there's not something beyond the material. And I think that a lot of people are starting to bring all of that together. I participated in a book with Dr. Barbara Mango and Lynn Miller. It's a book about anomalous experiences. And there's been some really good research done on the type of people who have out-of-body experiences and near-death experiences and aerial sightings, things like that, past life memories. I'm hoping we're going to get into a more kind of holistic understanding of who people are and how their spirituality and their emotional status all plays into that. We'll get there. I just think it's going to take a while. And when you're on the other side, you realize that we are connected to everyone and and even if you know if somebody's getting murdered across town here i don't know them but that's injuring me in some way because we're all connected and i think once you've been on the other side and you've realized that connection it's really hard to let it go when you get here and so for a while i kind of felt like i had one foot on the other side and one foot on this side and it was really difficult it was a very hard path to walk because i would get these visions and things and then they would turn out to be true and and a lot of times it was very negative things like you know a murder or things like that and I would get details that were needed but I found that spiritually it was it was killing me I just couldn't do it anymore because I could feel it so if I would see how someone was murdered I would see it because it was like it was happening to me and so I've got to block that out I've got to put a division between me and that part of the spirit world that exists. You know, those people, their bodies die, but their spirits are forever. And just to keep me safe and well and and not going crazy, I'm gonna have to put a separation there. But every once in a while, you know, I'll just, I'll get something strong on someone like I did with Brian and and I can't keep it to myself. But for the most part, I kind of separate myself from it because I find as soon as you say it out loud, that people come out of the woodwork they're like my sister died you know are you getting anything from her and i'm like look guys it's not a hat trick i can't you know i can't just look at you and be like "Mm -hmm, i know it you know it doesn't work like that and so i pretty much block it off because i think there's a lot of work to be done here there's a lot of hurting people and those things tend to sort themselves out one way or the other without my intervention so i try not to get in the middle of them It's interesting where I had done some end-of-life care with this thing called a terminal wean. So somebody's on the ventilator and they or their family decides, but particularly when that person decides that they're done, they don't want to, they don't want to be kept alive on life support and they want to be allowed to just naturally pass. And it's just like the most neglected stage of life. We celebrate births and weddings and graduations. But when it comes to death, everybody's like, "Oh, I don't know what to do," and they're, you know, it's all weird for them. And and I'm like, this is a transition, just like any other. So those patients would make that decision, and there was always some fear that went with it. And I would always say to them, "What are you scared of? What, what's the thing you're most worried about for tomorrow when we turn off the ventilator?" And because you know they could die immediately, they could it could take hours. They, you know, you don't know. It's scary. And um, almost a hundred percent of the time, they were worried for their family. I don't want my family to see me suffer. I don't want my family to see me gasping for breath. Or they were worried that it, there was gonna be excruciating pain. And I always thought it was important to ask that question because those are both things you can address. And so I would say, okay, you know, yes, we definitely want your family here and we're going to make sure that you're comfortable. You know, We don't want you to have an agonizing death. There's things we can do to ease that and make your transition onto the other side. Easier, you know, and not traumatic for your family. And so I'd always bring coffee in and drinks, and and I would tell the family because this was usually planned. I would tell the family ahead of time, bring pictures. We can write down what what she remembers about those pictures, or what her maybe if she can't speak, what her reaction was when you started talking about the story that went with that picture, and you'll have that forever. It's just so humbling, you know, that somebody would accept you into that circle because it's just the most intimate thing you can do, and. You'd see these moments of lucidity, even in people who were slipping away. They'd, they'd hear something and you could see them light up. And, and I would have these families come back to me, and this was before my near-death experience. A family came back to me one time and they said, you know, I want to thank you for what you did when my mom passed away. And, and I'm like, oh, you know, no problem, you're welcome. And that lady looked at me and she said, it was the best, awful experience of my life. I thought, that's beautiful. You know, everything has such depth. There's good and bad in everything. And that woman in that moment could acknowledge both and let them exist together. But I retired after my near-death experience because I just was so sick. And so I didn't go back to work, but I still have a lot of interaction. I do a lot of patient education. And you've got so many people that are scared to die and who are just terrified to die because they think there's nothing. They want to fight death to the bitter end. And I'm like, it's coming for all of us, you guys. And it's not death. You're either alive here or you're super alive on the other side. And we don't need to fear it. It is a big question. People ask me a lot of time. They're like, how do you know what your purpose is? People think it's this mystical thing. and, And I did. I was like, what is my purpose? What was I put on this earth for? You know, I don't feel like I've figured it out yet. And then it just finally dawned on me that I was making it way too hard. I'm like, your purpose is whatever lands in front of you that day. The lady at the grocery store who needed 70-some cents so that she didn't have to put her groceries back. And the elderly person who's struggling to get out of their car. We, we dismiss how important these things are. It, we used to be so much more connected. We knew our neighbors. Now, you know, somebody comes to your door and, and you're like, who's at the door? Did you? Did, you, did somebody say they were coming over? I don't know who that is. Do you, Is it a salesman? You know, we're like this phobic of interaction. And I think kind of to find your spiritual path and your purpose and all of that, you got to get your hands dirty. You've got to let some people in. You've got to have some crap go sideways. You have to help somebody who takes advantage of you. It's just, you just have to live, you know, and, and not shelter yourself so much from these interactions and relationships with people, especially people you don't agree with or you don't know. And so I ask God, I'm like, just put whoever you need me to talk to in my path and I will do my best to share love with them. And it really is that simple, you know? The most important thing we can do is not isolate and not keep silent. I see so many people that are just almost suicidal. It's heartbreaking to me, you know, because we only have our own experiences to interpret everything to, through. So if you believe that you are now, because of an experience or because somebody told you so, you're a victim. That's who you are. That is how you see everything. If something goes wrong, you assume it's because that person had something against you. And, and you go through your whole life because that's the filter you're looking through. And it, it, it's a huge problem. And I'm like, the thing is, is if you come to believe that your identity is a victim, you never become a survivor, and you never become an overcomer. You're just a victim. And I'm like, even if it's true, even if it's true that this little kid's going to be discriminated against, and he's going to have to work harder for everything, and you know he may face this sort of issue over and over and again through his life, does it bring any good to tell him that? Even if it were true, I wouldn't say it. To me, it would be much better to say, this life is so crazy and so complex, and there's so many different people who are perceiving exact same things a different way because of who they are and what they've been through. But you can overcome all of that and share stories of people who have overcome all of that. And you know in your heart what's right or wrong. I always tell people, look, if you are making a decision and you're having to justify the decision you're gonna make, it's wrong. Period. You never have to justify the right decision. You, You just do it because you know that's the right thing. You don't have to talk yourself into it. But It depends on the the timing, you know. Sometimes you have to wait, sometimes you have to pray, sometimes you have to do. And you're not always right. That would be a good one for people to embrace. You're not always right. I feel like there's such a spiritual void in the world, but I don't think God's design is for ultimate destruction and calamity. I don't. Now, do I think that people with power can push it to that absolutely and ultimately you're going to be okay so you know don't let that cause you to lose a lot of sleep and and live your life in anxiety i find everything that's going on incredibly fascinating it's like the most interesting novel i've ever read but don't fall into it we have to kind of separate ourselves from all of that chatter that's going on turn off your tv believe me if something bad enough happens that you need to react to someone's going to tell you And you've got to pull yourself out of that experiment that's going on where they're just trying to have us at each other's throats. It's interesting because you can destroy an entire people without ever firing a shot. You can just turn them against each other. But there's nothing in me that wants bad for you or bad for anybody else, and I will help you. And and I will do it out of a pure heart, not because I just don't want you to think I'm a bad person. And most people are that way. And I think we have to start realizing that we're not here by accident i know this all seems chaotic and super scary and like it's it's just all going to crash and burn but we're here right now the timing of your being here right now is not an accident god thought you up in his head for a while he could have put you in any time frame but he put you in this one you're here for a reason and you need to figure out what that reason is and part of figuring that out is engaging with people and having community and knowing who your neighbors are and knowing what's going on around you and and engaging in a kind and productive way in that. You know, don't be a force for destruction. We keep looking outside of ourselves for answers and that is the problem. If you want something done in your house and you want it done right, you don't send your nine-year-old boy to do it generally, right? You do it yourself because it's an important task and it needs to be done properly. And so I feel like we have to get back to that. We have to get back to being involved in our community, being involved in our local area, the decisions that are being made, knowing our neighbors, knowing what the needs are in your community. I mean, you've got people living in communities and they have no idea how prolific their homeless population is or their population of people who are addicted to drugs or your number of elderly shut-ins Nobody knows, these people just go invisible. Pretty soon you start losing hope. And we've all walked through like this and, and now it's a hot mess. And and the answer to that is re-engaging and believing that you are the light of the world. God is in you and people are looking for that. And you know, just showing people love every day is plenty. It's plenty, it's way more than a lot of people are doing. God noticed the change I gave a woman in a grocery store and thought it was impactful enough to show that as the only good thing I'd done in my life. He knew there were others, but that was to him, that was the most important thing, just this spontaneous act of kindness. And so this was the message that God had given me, and I know I'm kind of like reading off my computer now, but I I have to be able to see it. So he said, such folly to think that anything escapes my knowing, as when you were with me all at once, all that I allowed you to know, you knew, No words were spoken, nor were they shouted. I whispered them into your spirit. I discreetly filled you with knowing. Knowing flowed into you as effortlessly as taking a breath. Is it not so? No truer words have ever been spoken or written. The great I am is in your core. The great I am is the light. Even when I am hidden, still I am. Is my energy charge sending me over each synapse in your brain? Even those small fibers knew that I am. They rose and they fell to the rhythm I created, to the symphony I conducted, I composed. I consider it a tragic comedy of arrogance when man denies what the smallest innervation knows. Man thinks he acts and moves outside my knowledge. How could it be so? I say, I proclaim he does not. His own fibers clutch themselves laughing at the idea. I am the flower, the wind, the rain, the sinew, the marrow, the rock, the author, the maker the touch that set in motion all that you see, all that you know, and all that you do not see or know. I knit you. I put breath in you. I'm coded in every cell. Every nanosecond of time falls in step as I will it so. I am in you. I am all. Even when you perceive nothing, still I am there. As I tell you this here and now, pressing my truth into your breast, your very heart presses it further in. So he had given me that message and and I didn't share it for a really long time because it felt like the most beautiful love letter anybody had ever written and I wanted it for myself. And then God kind of impressed on me, you know, I asked you to share that and when you don't share it, it's theft. And I'm like, well, shoot, I, you know, I can't steal. So <laughs> I'll share it. But I, I had a reflection at the end that I had written as I thought about that. I was so profoundly changed by my experience. I'm open to being heard and being loved. I'm learning that hurt people hurt people. I try to use kind words to turn away anger. It doesn't always work, but a soft word rarely hurts. It seems easier to discern the difference between my own internal chatter and the prompting of the Holy Spirit. God continues to do profound things in and through me. I've definitely had many difficult times. Boy, that's an understatement, but I see them differently. I can choose to let circumstances break me, or take those opportunities to become more. I try to engage with people in a more real and meaningful way. I'm learning to be more authentic and vulnerable, especially when being vulnerable is hard. If I feel sad, I'm much less likely to hide it. If I feel anger, I'm more likely to temper it with love or at least understanding. I am flawed and beautifully so. Love carries us while pain and mistakes build us. Every awful thing is an opportunity. We can shrink from it Or rise to it and I choose to rise. I used to build walls to protect myself but the thing with wall building is this. While walls do keep people out, they also keep you in. You make yourself a captive and unwittingly become your own jailer. You limit all potential. I've been taking down those walls every day. Still, I tear down a bit more and one brick at a time. My prison is looking a lot like rubble these days. It lays all around me and I refuse to put it back up. I refuse. I'm climbing on top of the remains in the rubble. I see freedom on the other side and I'm claiming it. I'm taking back all I surrendered. I refuse to make myself a slave or a captive, not after all God has done for me and not after how he loved me and healed me. He saw me, all of me, the good and the bad, and instead of hiding from him in shame, I chose to surrender in his presence. In that moment, when I laid myself bare before God, he took all my shame and vanquished it. He took all the good in me and magnified it, and he made me more, and I refused to squander it. God's giving me a do-over. He's giving me life and love and people to connect with, and that's all in front of me now. And rather than hide, I choose to say yes. I won't shrink from it. I hope his light still shines from me. I hope it continues to just pour out, because to keep it for only myself would be theft to give it is my game. Loving others is a choice, and that choice heals me every day.